This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. Our gracious God, we remember in your word that you've said you're able to do more than we ask or imagine. And we pray that today you would cause this part of your word to do good in our minds and hearts. We pray that you would impact with things that we need to know and then that you would strengthen us in the things that we need to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear friends, although there's a lot happening around us at the moment, we've come to the last in a little series in the book of James. This is the ninth of a series of nine. James chapter five, we're going to read verses 12 to 20. Those of you who know your Bible well know that this is the passage we've just had it read for us so well, which deals with the sick person, the prayer of faith, and the sick person made well. And these verses, especially 14 and 15 of James 5, have attracted a huge amount of attention. And you can understand that when you think of sickness, which is such a dreadful business, a wretched, awful experience. And having had a little taste of it this year, and some of you have had a taste of it this year, and some of you know people who are really going through deep waters, to think that the Bible would say something about how there might be a way out is extremely important, of genuine interest to us. So these verses have been of great fascination. Now, I think at the start, we need to avoid two big traps with the verses to do with sickness and healing. Uh, one of them is to pretend that there is some magic button, the name it and claim it button, you can imagine people who abuse these verses in James chapter 5 and they say to somebody, you're sick. Well, it says here in James 5, the prayer of faith will make you well. So if you would just come on, stop your doubting and be believing and get someone to pray the prayer of faith or pray it for yourself, you will be well. And I don't need to tell you that that type of thinking has caused a great deal of bewilderment in the church and that people have abused these verses not seen them in their context, lifted them out to say what they want to say. And there have been people who've been through the wards of the hospitals to quickly pronounce healing on people and walk away, leaving those people still sick, having to cope with not only the illness, but also this God who has obviously broken his promises that were pronounced over them. So there is a great deal of danger attached with taking these verses too slickly and too simply. Uh, the other danger, however, is to dismiss them. It's to explain them away. You might fear that I'm about to do that this morning. You might think this is the sort of church which is going to take these verses and bury them. And um, in the end, they'll say nothing. I'll have to stand up and say to you this morning, well, you know, they might have meant something to simple people in the past, but they don't mean anything today. So I think you will agree that James chapter 5 is either being quoted by people who do want it to be the key to healing, and they will say to sick people, just do what James 5 says. And the verses are also explained away by people who don't know what to do with them and who basically say, let's not go near them. Uh, I humbly want to suggest to you that if we read these verses in context, we'll see that they are still extremely significant. And if we get the main verses of the whole passage 
And we don't just latch on to the one or two verses which spring out as being very appealing, but we see the whole of the section, it will be of great benefit to us. For example, would it surprise you to notice that the word prayer is used in verse 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 18? All different types of prayer. My introductory question to you is to say, especially if you've been following the series, I want to ask you this question. What do we know James is deeply interested in, according to this letter? And I've been trying to stress to you that what James is deeply concerned about is deep and long Christianity. Spiritual health. Working out who Jesus is. Being reborn, chapter 1, verse 18. And then being profoundly changed, looking ahead to the great harvest. And therefore, we would expect James, if he's been on this big issue for a long time, to wind up in the same way, and he does. He reinforces the same theme as you get to the end of the letter. He wants people to relate to God, praying. He wants people to relate to one another as believers, And he wants people to stay on the path right to the end. So I want to look at this with you under three headings. The first is the person who wants spiritual help, verses 13 to 16. Second, the person who finds spiritual help, verses 17 to 18. And the third is the person who needs spiritual help, verses 19 to 20. And I'm going to spend about 80% of our time on the first point. And then we're just going to quickly finish with the last two. And please don't think that I'm going to explain away the verses that have to do with sickness. But I do think they fit into the main context. So the first thing is the person wanting spiritual help. Let me read again verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Are you in trouble? Pray. Are you in good heart? Praise. James is not taking us back to Sunday school. He's not a fool. He knows that we're not fools. He's urging people who claim to be Christians to relate to God. Now, that's such an easy thing to forget. We can claim to be Christians. We can know the stuff that's in the Bible, and we can act like practical atheists. You remember the man in chapter 4, verse 13, the businessman who makes his plans as if God is irrelevant? And now here in 5.13, James is saying, have you learned to relate to God? Because if you're in trouble and you tell everyone but God, what sort of God do you believe in? And if you're joyful and you're blessed and you're happy and you don't credit God with that, what sort of God do you believe in? And I think, incidentally, this may explain verse 12, which we left off last week and I was tempted to leave off this week, which basically says that we're not to swear, that is, make oaths. And uh, this, I think, work with me on this. What is verse 12 all about? Especially above all, he says, don't swear, that is, don't make oaths. It's possible that the person who's under pressure, who is suffering, that's verses 7 to 11, inflates their words with an oath. You know, I tell you by dot, 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 I'm going to, I tell you by dot, 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 this is what's going to happen. And it's possible, you see, that the person is also unreliable and so that nobody's believing them anymore and they prop up their position with an oath. This is how they're going to get through the tough time. 
I'm going to do this by dot, 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 I'm going to do this. And it's possible that as uh, Jesus warned against making these kinds of oaths, buttressing your words as if your words need buttressing, in the Sermon on the Mount, he warned against it in Matthew chapter 6. And here James is doing the same thing. You're in a difficult time, you're suffering. Uh, the question is, who's your saviour? Are you going to dig deep, as the world says, and be a big guy? Or are you going, verse 13, to talk to your father in heaven, your saviour? Are you going to pray to him? Are you going to praise him? It's a good question. Yesterday I was uh, sitting waiting to read and pray and my head was in a complete spin and I couldn't think what I was doing and what I was meant to be doing and I couldn't get thoughts to go straight. And I remembered that this 5.13 was my first text for today and I thought to myself, well, that's what I'll do. I'll put it into practice. I will pray. So I lifted up my simple prayer, which is help me to go one step at a time. Help me to put in place the first thing and then the second thing. Lead me in the right way. Very practical. It's not silly. But then comes the question in verse 14, which is different. Are you weak? The NIV says, are you sick? The word is weak, but it's generally and regularly used in the Gospels to mean sick. Are you sick? Are you weak? Are you frail? Are you fragile? Verse 14, are you sick? Well, you should call... Now, friends, imagine I ask you to just turn to the person beside you and finish the sentence. Are you sick? You should call. What are you going to say to the person? You're going to say, your GP. You should call your doctor if you're not well. That's the normal thing, isn't it? If you're just sick, call your doctor. And James knows the word for doctor and he probably knew Luke the doctor and there are doctors in James's day. And he could easily have said, if you're sick, call the doctor. But he doesn't. He says, if you're weak, sick, call the elders. And it's obvious that something else is going on. Call the elders, verse 14. Get them to pray, verse 14. Because sin may be involved, verse 15. And this is a lesson for the whole church, verse 16. Sickness is there, but something bigger is going on. And if this was James simply saying, are you sick? Well, get some prayer and you'll get well. You can be absolutely sure that this simple slogan formula would be all over the church and all over the world. And this building would be packed with people every Sunday because the whole world would know that the way to get immediately sick, uh, to get immediately well, is to become a Christian. And then you can just come and you can take your sickness to prayer and you'll be well. And all the New Testament writers would say exactly the same thing. And it would be a major theme in all the letters, but it's not. It's just here. And all the people in the New Testament who got sick, like Paul and Timothy and Trophimus, would have been instantly made well, but they were not. So what I want to do now is I want to follow the verses. I want to follow the argument of 14, 15, 16 by asking some very basic questions, and I hope you'll find this helpful. So here are my questions. Question one, who initiates the whole process? Who begins it, who starts it, who gets it rolling? And the answer, verse 14, is it's the sick person. 
It's the weak person. He or she should call the elders. You're in trouble? Speak to God. Are you happy? Speak to God. Are you weak or sick with something? Go to the elders. So the initiative doesn't come from the church. This is not people in the church driving around in their car with their bottle of oil looking for people to heal. This initiative doesn't come from the healer in the church. We find the person who's got the gift of healing. No, no, no. We're not calling people up onto a platform, come and be healed. This is the sick person who initiates. And I think this is the vital thing. Listen very carefully to this, because I think this is extremely important. I think that probably in the context of sickness, some distress, whether it's physical or mental, this person is conscious of real spiritual trouble. And they are calling spiritual friends or people to come. Now, in our own church, this has been entirely relevant member of this congregation has farewelled her father, uh, who died at a good age as a real believer. But uh, the interesting thing is that in his last days, he asked his family, who were spiritual people, to specially pray for him so that he might experience in a real way the peace of God, conscious as he was of certain things which needed to be forgiven or put right, and so, although he could have rung the elders of the church to come and do the same thing, he was able to ask the spiritual members of his own family to come and pray for him, to help him to receive the real assurance of forgiveness and to be at peace with God, which is what they did. So the initiative comes from the sick person. My second question, who arrives to help? And we've already answered this, verse 14. It's the elder from the church, people who represent the church. This is not the man with the healing gifts. You don't ring up the healer of the church. You don't ring up a priest. You don't even ring up a priest because you're at the point of death. Verse um, 14, 15 doesn't seem to give any indication the person is necessarily at the point of death, but you know that this verse lies behind the Roman Catholic view of extreme unction, where the priest would come and pour oil on you and get you ready to die. But you'll see quite clearly in James 5 that this is a verse that's got to do with the whole fellowship, so you may be called, you may be called, and it's not to see a person leave this world, but to see a person who is feeling weak get comforted and may be restored. Third question, what do the elders do when they come? The answer is they pray over the person, which presumably is because the person is very weak and lying down. And then they anoint the person with oil. Why do they anoint the person with oil? Well, in the Bible, oil had two great purposes. It was either medicinal, like the Good Samaritan pouring oil on the wounds of the man who was found beside the side of the road. But there are no wounds here in James 5. This is not a medicinal situation. Or oil in the Old Testament and the New Testament was a symbol of the grace of God, the sustaining grace of God. You think of the virgins in Matthew 25 who had to keep their lamps filled with oil. In other words, they would stay faithful and trusting to the end. Or oil was a symbol of dedication. 
And again, you think of the way the priests in the Old Testament were dedicated to the service of the Lord by having oil poured on them. And I think this probably fits the context the best, that here is a person who's being anointed with oil because they are wanting to rededicate, redevote their life to the Lord. That's my guess. The one thing I think I can safely say is that oil in the 21st century is really a symbol of nothing to us. I mean, it may be to an unusual person that oil is a very symbolic thing. So whether you go and visit somebody and you take some olive oil or some cooking oil or some sump oil, it's really not going to mean a lot to that person. In the end, you see, oil is not a 21st century symbol of anything. So it's probably not part of our ministry. Fourth, what's the prayer of faith? This is the real key. What's the prayer of faith? And every word in verse 15 is very carefully chosen by James. Does he mean the prayer of faith is a faithful prayer, an orthodox, doctrinally correct prayer? Does he mean a prayer of faith is a confident prayer? Oh God, you can do this. Yes, you can. We believe you can. Well, look at the effects of the prayer of faith. Verse 15. The sick person is made well, literally saved, the Lord will raise them, will resurrect them. Now stay with me because if you want to really shake my hand this morning, down at morning tea or anywhere, and escape my beady eye as I look at you and say, what was it all about this morning? You'll need to know this. What a terrifying person. (laughs) The prayer of faith causes the person to be made well, the word is saved and raised. When you pray the prayer of faith, the person is saved and raised. And those two words, friends, are so wide-ranging that they could mean anything. You could pray for somebody to be saved from their disease and raised from their sickbed. Surely we want that. And we should ask for that. We could pray that someone would be saved from their confusion and their fear and raised for new usefulness. Or we could pray that someone would be saved from their sins because at the point of death they're not a believer and raised to glory with Christ in heaven and all of that would be wonderful. But you see the range of save and raise is so wide it means that what we're saying to our Heavenly Father is, Heavenly Father you can do anything and our desire is that this sick person would be saved from their disease and raised from their sickbed but we also want them to be saved from their doubts and we want them to be raised to usefulness and we want them to one day be, well, we want them to be saved from their sins and one day raised from this world. Heavenly Father, you can do anything. We're trusting you with everything. That's the prayer of faith. That's the prayer that says, I trust you. When the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia was heading into his, I think, Good Friday or Easter service, somebody dropped the news 
that he had terminal cancer just as he was walking in to take the service. And he prayed with his elders and he said, let's get on with what we're doing. Later, as the cancer began to take its toll, he said these final words to his congregation. Weeks and weeks and months later, he said this to his congregation. He said, we can pray for a miracle, but they are rare. We pray for wise doctors and effective treatment, but especially we pray that God is glorified because things that come to us are not accidental. He is sovereign and good. So if he does something in your life, would you want to change it? And could you improve it? We cannot improve what he does. So let us move forward with this conviction, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. I think that's a tremendous statement of faith. He's not saying God can't heal. He's not failing to ask for healing, but he's trusting God to do the very best, assured that when God does things, he knows what he's doing. Again, this week, I've been reading a little book called Praying Backwards by somebody called Brian Chappell, and he suggests that a lot of our prayers would be improved if we started by praying with God's glo- for God's glory. Well, of course, that's the way the Lord's Prayer starts. And then we go on to our specific request and we finish that God would help us to trust him. And he gives the example of a lady called May whose husband was dying and he asked her what she'd prayed as he was dying and she said, I prayed for God's will to be done. That's the first. I then prayed that God would heal him. And then the third thing, I prayed that God would give me grace to trust him whatever happened. Because she said, faith doesn't dictate to God. Faith asks for all the things that we want and especially the essential things. I think, again, that's an excellent way to pray. So if in chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, if sickness has provoked a new spiritual concern for peace with God or just the peace of God, and God gives the greater blessing, which is peace with God or the peace of God, no wonder James goes on in chapter 5, verse 16 to say, do this around the church. Do this in the fellowship. Find somebody who you can talk to about what is blocking your fellowship with God. In other words, confess your sins so that they can help you. Now, when it comes to confessing your sins, you confess to the circle that is affected. So if you've done some private sin, don't confess it to the congregation. That won't help us at all. Don't confess it to your home group. That may not help them at all. Confess to the person who's affected. But if the sin affects the whole congregation, then it needs to be confessed to the whole congregation. But James is saying, have the sort of fellowship where you can talk to somebody or some people and ask their help for this particular battle. You don't need a priest to hear your confession. Find the right person who will listen, who will love you, who will pray for you, and who will keep your spiritual condition strong. 
That's the context. And now the last two little sections, very briefly this morning, stay with it. Um, we're going to just quickly look at the person who finds spiritual help and the person who needs spiritual help. The person who finds spiritual help is in verses 17 to 18. Uh, here are two little couplets at the end. Uh, they deserve their own complete sermons, but I want to simply point out to you that they're just illustrations of what is important to James relating to God, relating to his people. Taking God at his word, helping Christians to keep going. And the person who he uses to illustrate is Elijah, 17 and 18. Elijah was a spiritual giant as far as the Jews were concerned. However, James is keen for us to know, verse 17, that Elijah is not so great. He's just like us. When you read the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, you discover that he was just like us. He had huge ups and he had huge downs. He sat by a river waiting to be fed like a baby. He had a massive victory on Mount Carmel, which was wonderful. And then he ran for his life, terrified of the, the king's wife that she would kill him. He was a very ordinary person. But the thing that was great about Elijah was that he took God at his word and he prayed for God to do his word. So God said he would hold back rain. Elijah prayed, verse 17, for God to hold back rain, and God held back rain. God promised that rain would come, and Elijah prayed that rain would come, verse 18, and rain came. The healthy Christian, you see, is not a giant. The healthy Christian knows that God is a giant. The power of prayer is not us. You don't need to come and find somebody who has got some special hotline to God. The power of prayer is not the clever words that are spoken. The power of prayer is the God we speak to, who's very great and very gracious. And you could send up a sob to God. And it would be heard and heeded more than 50 polished King James language prayers. So, we are weak, he is not. Os Guinness, who's one of the great Christian writers and apologists today, tells of a woman in 1815 in Scotland who was tragically widowed when her husband fought in a duel and lost and left her with a whole string of children. And she was so devastated, she decided to take her life and she went to a high bridge to throw herself off. And as she stood on the high bridge ready to throw herself off, she saw in the corner of her eye a farmer plowing. And she said that what he was doing was so purposeful and so deliberate and so devoted that she changed her mind. And she went home and uh, asked in prayer that if God was real, that he would make himself known to her and that he would bring her into a purposeful life, which he did when she came to Christ. She then began to pray that God would give to the next 12 generations of her family purposeful, devoted Christian people. I think Os Guinness is probably generation seven or eight. A weak person praying to a powerful God. That's what James wants for our Christian reality. And the last little two verses, 19 to 20, brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death 
and cover a multitude of sins. Could you have a greater gospel finish to the letter? If ever you've got the idea that James is crazy and on the edge of the faith, here he is with his very last verse saying, what I really want for you is that you'll escape the grave, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll go right through to be with Christ. And he wants the church to watch one another and help one another so that we don't fall away. If you need, therefore, any final proof that James is really concerned for spiritual health, look at these illustrations. I wonder whether he's conscious of his own foolishness when he walked the path away from Christ. I wonder whether he's full of gratitude because he's been brought onto the path of Christ. And so many here this morning, your concern for people who are not believers in your family, and um, many of us feel and grieve and long with the same concern. And there are many of you who long for friends and neighbors, all sorts of people, maybe even, even in the church building, to be saved. And God hears your prayer. He's great and gracious. He watches and he blesses your actions and your activities. And he works with you for an absolutely majestic plan. The most difficult thing, of course, in the present is to be patient and not fear that things are getting worse and worse and worse. No, your prayers and your actions are going to a God who's able to protect and provide for the whole of the process. And that's why we need to remember in the words of the Apostle Paul as we come to the end of James, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. James would echo that. He wants people to be spiritually well and to keep going all the way to Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we give you great thanks for bringing James to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, for causing this letter to be written through him, which has done us good in these last weeks. We thank you for searching us. We thank you that you're deeply concerned for our soul and for our preservation and for our eternity. We thank you for giving provision through the Lord Jesus of forgiveness of sins and escape from the grave. And we pray, our gracious God, that you'd hear our thanks for our Saviour, that you'd help us to trust and obey him all our days. And we commend one another to your care and protection, that you would cause each one present in this building and each one listening to this talk to trust and follow and stay and rejoice and be fruitful and to arrive. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.